Mark Zuckerberg may be the most powerful person in the world. At no other time in history has a single human had such fine-grained control over the most influential tool for media, which is Facebook. Today's guests are Michael Zimmer and Nick Proferes, the creators of the Zuckerberg Files, which is an index of every recorded word that Mark Zuckerberg has said in text, video, or audio. Why would someone create this? I was partly expecting Michael and Nick to be anti-Facebook because the Zuckerberg Files sounds like a tool to hold the Facebook CEO accountable. It sounds like a watchdog tool. In reality, Michael and Nick have a much more nuanced view of Facebook and Zuckerberg than I expected. They are Facebook users themselves. They love Facebook, I think. I'm probably putting words in their mouth there, but... They initially built the Zuckerberg files as a way to portent the product directions that Facebook might lean towards, particularly those related to privacy. They were really more interested in figuring out where the product was going by virtue of tracking what Mark Zuckerberg said and how directly those utterances translated into product direction. So this is quite an interesting episode, not completely related to software engineering, though there are some elements of software engineering in it. Um, So with that in mind, please send me any feedback you have. If you like this episode, let me know. If you don't like it, let me know. And um, please send me any related topics or other things you think would make for good shows. Um, And as always, also share any episodes that you like with your friends. This show grows by word of mouth, so I appreciate that. With that, let's get to this episode, The Zuckerberg Files. Michael Zimmer and Nick Proferis work on the Zuckerberg Files. Michael and Nick, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi. Hi, thanks for having us. So the Zuckerberg Files is an archive of all the public statements from Facebook's founder and CEO, Mark Zuckerberg. Why did you create this? So it's been out there for a number of years now, and one of the main motivations that that I had in, in putting the Zuckerberg Files together was really trying to get an understanding of how does Zuckerberg talk about things like privacy, like the Zuckerberg, uh, uh, the Facebook users. Uh, how does he talk about advertising? How does he talk about what sharing information will do for us? And this stemmed out of a number of conversations that I've had with other colleagues and students at conferences within the internet research community about just how is this whole Facebook phenomenon being put together? And what's the role of the way that Zuckerberg thinks about these issues and how he's shaping this platform? So it was actually you know, on a whim where we're having beers and we're talking about these things and we're saying, wouldn't it be great if we just started collecting everything that he says so we can study it and try to understand the way that he thinks? Because we saw this really close connection between sort of Zuckerberg's, you know, personal ideology and what he was doing with this platform. So I got some people together and we started to, to create it and it's been growing ever since. Yeah. And I, I would add that um, one of our colleagues, Anna Lauren Hoffman, uh, was instrumental also in sort of the genesis of this idea. Absolutely. Mm. So you noticed that Zuckerberg and Facebook were ef- very effective at carrying out a epitomization of what Zuckerberg would be talking about in media or on his Facebook account in terms of, hey, this is how I view privacy. We're entering this new domain of how privacy, of the things that you can expose about yourself on the internet and how much you're sharing. And you notice that it was, there was a 
incredibly direct correlation between what Zuckerberg would say and how policies would be implemented on Facebook. So you created the Zuckerberg files to portent what kinds of things people can expect on Facebook and perhaps privacy abroad, because Facebook kind of sets the tone for a, a lot of privacy policies throughout social media. Uh, is that accurate? Well, that was kind of our hypothesis going in. Um, I was giving a talk where I was noticing some shifts in how Facebook approaches privacy. And I was also then noticing some shifts in how Zuckerberg kind of talks about it or justifies it or uh, apologizes for, for Facebook uh, for changes that were happening on the platform. And that's what kind of motivated this. Well, I wonder if he's his, the way that he talks about this has changed over time or now that they have advertising or now that they're a public company. Um, you know, how is this changing the way that he talks about his goals and aspirations for the platform and how does that feed into how the platform is actually designed so that's you know what i think is the real power of this archives now gives us a chance as as researchers to really try to understand uh his rhetoric and, and how that relates to a number of different kinds of of, of aspects of, of the, the way that facebook impacts us as users yeah and I, i'd add that it's you know also really important to understand how his rhetoric has changed in relationship to different things that Facebook is undergoing uh, in terms of its you know, IPO, in terms of its um, uh, changes that it makes to the platform, right? And understanding sort of the relationship between the social and the technical uh, is really critically important for understanding uh, this very complex phenomena that is Facebook. Is this at all about creating a platform that is sort of a watchdog on what Zuckerberg is saying to track potential hypocrisy? I mean, that that wasn't the intent going in, but it certainly you know can have that kind of impact. Um, and, and it has been very illuminating, and a number of people have written both scholarly articles and, and essays you know, in, in, in more popular media identifying where these kinds of changes happen. Um, I'm in the process of, of updating it right now for some of his more recent speeches where he's also talking a lot more about the internet.org initiative for providing internet access across the globe. You know, we'll be adding the yesterday's announcement about some of the health initiatives that he and his wife are doing through the foundation. And, and that might be the kind of thing where we start seeing, you know, are there some some nuances or some contradictions in terms of how he says one thing in one context, but but maybe something else in a different context. Yeah, understanding how he talks to different audiences at different points was, I think, another really critical thing that uh, the Zuckerberg file sort of allows us to do. And and the other thing I'd add is that um, you know, in addition, there's not necessarily a lot of resources that uh, scholars can necessarily go to uh, in order to get access to this kind of archival material. Very often, they have to do this kind of work on their own. Um, and you know, having something for the scholarly community more broadly, you know, isn't it isn't necessarily operating in a watchdog scenario, but more making resources available to others that are interested in these topics. Hmm. So maybe this is not really in your. So okay, are you are you more interested in um, creating? a resource that other people can use or are you more interested in understanding what people actually think about in terms of sharing like you have these these questions on the Zuckerberg files website where you're you, you talk about um, you know these are the questions we need to be asking about 
social media and sharing and it sounds like the the motivation that really drives you is how do people think about sharing information this is such a you know we've had facebook for like 10 years or something but this is still very raw territory and there's you know stuff comes up all the time where it's like oh this is surprising that people are willing to share this or um or you know maybe we you know we share too much and then there's some reining in of uh of the public uh you know ways that people share but it seems like you are more curious in this um the nature of how people feel about sharing uh and the fact that you ended up creating a platform that people are using maybe to track Zuckerberg's hypocrisy or uh, whatever else he says, uh, that was coincidental. And it's, it sounds like you're more interested in the sociological questions of what are humans willing to share? What is practical about sharing? What's the utility of sharing? Well, I think there's, I think we could separate those two. So, you know, I entered this with, with an idea about, you know, I want to try to understand how Zuckerberg thinks about privacy and sharing and information flows. And one way for me to do that as a researcher is to look at his rhetoric. So having this kind of archive helps me do that. And then on the other side... So you're side, specifically interested in Zuckerberg, not like the sociological question of what do people care about? Well, we can, we can think about this in terms of different layers of that question. You know, I, I, okay. have a, I have a broader concern of that broadly, and in particular, given the dominance of Facebook in, in our contemporary society, I was looking at that, that one piece of it. Um, but as you know, also as a researcher, I realized this is a resource that I can make available to others. So other people are using the Zuckerberg files for other kinds of purposes. Some are trying to understand how he talks about innovation. Some are just trying to get inspiration about uh, how to lead a company and how to and, and, and looking at Zuckerberg as an example of that. So there's there's over mm-hmm. 200 uh, researchers that have uh, gotten access uh, to the files for for a, a variety of different kinds of reasons. And th- and I add to this that um, I, I think I have a slightly different uh, reason for my interest in the Zuckerberg files, uh, which is in part that you know part of how we learn how to use the technology is you know we we might get a technology and just kind of try to figure out how to use it on our own. We might we might watch someone else use it, right? But we take in a lot of messages about technology and about. Uh, a technology's role in our lives, potential role in our lives, and how to use a technology. And um, Zuckerberg has a really a very strong prominence uh, in creating those kinds of messages. Not just because he says it and people read his blog, but also because the words that he uses uh, or uses um, get picked up by the media and get repeated. Right, and that becomes very strongly influential in sort of users uh, uh, creating expectations and mental models about, you know, sort of what's appropriate, how I should maybe uh, approach sharing on Facebook, who might use uh, Facebook, uh, how I might share information with those others. Uh, So I'm very interested in sort of the relationship and a kind of middle ground between those two endpoints. Michael, you mentioned something that I thought was interesting. What you said, people are following what he says following what Zuckerberg says very closely because they're looking for ways to run a company or they're looking for inspiration I think that we have entered this age maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken about this maybe we've been in this age for a while but we've been in this age where these tech CEOs are almost like a new level of celebrity mm. that is beyond what 
you know what we what we knew maybe in the 90s or even in the early 2000s where these people like Zuckerberg or Bezos or uh, Larry Page they achieve this um, this prominence where what they say is almost like a, a messianic um, <laughs> type of type of thing where they can say something and you know people will 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 use that as oh I should you know this is so inspirational or um, I I should model myself after this and in many, in many cases that's that's not a, that's not a bad thing because many of these people have done something really inspirational and it's often built off of very strong and interesting and unique principles that are positive and forward looking and but what made you focus on Zuckerberg? Why not Larry Page or or Bezos or one of these other tech messiahs, Elon Musk or something? Right. No, that, that's a great question. And I think, you know, Zuckerberg has that kind of ethos like Steve Jobs had with Apple, where his identity is so intimately intertwined with the platform, um, as well as his hands-on development of the platform. And if you watch The Social Network, you see the fictionalized version of all that. But but he built Facebook, and he... You know, he still is is highly involved in, in at the very product level and the coding level in terms of what we can do with Facebook in terms of what kind of and, and not to not to mention not to mention the attachment and the devotion of his employees. Right. I have never seen anything like that, and I I see it all the time doing interviews with Facebook employees yeah. or I mean, talking it, to people about Facebook. It, it's a compelling story. I mean, of course, he's this young guy that that quits college and becomes one of the richest people on, on the planet. And, and at the same time, I think we also have a closer or what, you know, what, what feels like a closer relationship to him because of our relationship to his platform than we do to like mm. the president of, you know, of universal pictures or, or of, you know, Chevrolet or, or some other company that we all deal with in our day-to-day lives. But, you know, it's, it's the nature of the platform where we see him using it. We can interact with him on the platform. He puts up videos. We can see him playing with his baby. You know, it, there, <laughs> there is a different kind of relationship. And then it's this inspiring story about, you know, building something that's that almost overnight becomes one of the most, you know, important platforms in, in, in the world. So I think there's a lot of interesting reasons why, why, why he is so important. I've, when I've been out to Facebook and I've talked with, with, with policy people on, on, on a variety of issues, I hear stories where, you know, well, we did it that way because that's what Zuck wanted, or we didn't, you know, put that privacy protection in place because Zuck didn't want that. Or, or the, you know, you hear those kinds of stories, which, you know, are, are hearsay, but, but that's what compels me to think about his particular role in the company. He's not just pushing out financial reports and shaking hands with investors. He's really you know, integral to how that company uh, runs in a way similar to, to Steve Jobs. Uh, and I'm actually hoping to sort of expand, you know, and, and Nick and I have talked about this, um, expanding this platform into doing this for someone like Larry Page or Marissa Mayer or, um, or, or the people at Twitter or, or other kinds of companies, because I still, I think there is still that kind of connection between their kind of worldview um, and what ends up being coded onto their platforms. Yeah. And, and, it's really interesting to me, having spent so much time digging through the, the language that he uses, is that uh, Zuckerberg also really invokes that relationship. It's not just this one-way thing. I mean, obviously, he right. posts videos and, and stuff like that. But uh, like when responding to you know things that have gone wrong on Facebook, um, like in relationship to, to Beacon and 
you know, and sort of public outcry, he often invokes this like you know personal care as you know uh, we're you know I'm going to strive to to fix this problem, right? And it's this very individualistic uh, uh, sort of response to to a problem. Indeed, yeah, um, and I think you know you you both have kind of touched on this thing i've heard it called asymmetric intimacy where you feel like you have an intimate relationship with a public figure um or a media figure uh just because you see them all the time or you you see their you know particularly this is this is made more intense on facebook where you see their videos or their statements all the time online and you get this feeling that oh, I know this person, mm-hmm. except they don't feel that way about you. And it's I think it's 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 kind of a unique thing. Um, but you know, get, getting getting away from the messianic discussion, more about the discussion of privacy. Do do either of you? So as you're studying these Zuckerberg files, these statements by Mark Zuckerberg. What are the things about privacy that emanate from his statements that perhaps the media or individuals, like what are the more subtle things or the themes that you pick up on that you might have particular knowledge or ability to articulate that other people who are not perusing the entire corpus of Mark Zuckerberg's statements uh, would think of? One thing that I've noticed is is a shifting in how he frames privacy in relation to users' ability to control information. Um, in fact, when he first when he first launched Facebook, privacy does emerge because he was. If you remember from the Social Network, you know they, they fictionalized how he got in trouble for creating Face Mash, where he took the students, you know, the, the, all, all the women at Harvard, and 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 put them side by side to to compare, you know, who's more attractive. And so when he launched Facebook, literally just a few months after that, um, on the Harvard campus, he, he, he talks about privacy, that we have privacy controls because he was worried about that kind of campus backlash. But then once it became um, uh, a little bit larger and started going under the campuses, privacy wasn't part of his discussion. It was all about openness and sharing and that we will be better if we share. We'll have better relationships. We'll have a better world if we share information. And you shouldn't want to keep things private. And it was always this kind of a scolding, you know, kind of approach towards towards privacy. Um, and then later on, when there became a little bit more of a public backlash, he started talking about, well, we do have controls. You control your information. Um, and that's the way that we're approaching privacy. It was about user control uh, and that we're not doing things without without permission. And then now, actually, he doesn't talk much about privacy anymore. And it's not that, you know, we're, we're not dealing with these problems but I think he sees it as resolved in his eyes. Uh, we are now sharing. We're now okay with this. Um, we'll have the controls in place and things like that. But he's, again, shifting back towards this sort of open society model that as long as we have information flowing and people have access to information, we'll be much better off. So it's one thing I'm actually in the process now of trying to trace his his the, the rhetoric he uses on privacy and trying to sort of map it up against what's happening with the company and what's happening in the world uh, to see what kind of relationships I can find. Yeah, I had a couple conversations around this topic of the openness. Uh, I talked to somebody from the EFF a couple weeks ago. We had a long conversation about this, and I brought up that one thing that I feel, and having grown up in the Facebook world, I'm probably biased, but 
I feel like we have this weird narrative in our society that is partially probably attributable to 1984, where we say, if we have these things where we're sharing by default and we have this increasing feeling of being surveilled, we are asymptoting towards the dystopian world of 1984, and that is a bad thing. And my sense is that some of what Zuckerberg, uh, when when he was speaking out in ter- in favor of openness, that was some of what he was pushing back against. Was he was saying, you know, just because we have these technologies that are, you could frame them as increasing surveillance, um, that doesn't mean that we're trending towards this dystopian um, surveillance society. Uh, and but but the but the thing is is that Zuckerberg and I can say for myself also is a, a white male living in America who doesn't right. have a whole lot to worry about right. by sharing everything. Right. Um, there are people who, if they shared their default everyday things, beliefs, uh, behaviors, they might be executed. And so it's there's no right now there's no safe global norm of privacy. Um, and part of that is due to unfortunate prejudices or dictatorships or whatever you want to call it. But um, I, I, maybe that's why he, ha- you know, he has trouble, uh, or he has stopped giving these public edicts about mm-hmm. here's how we should do privacy, here's how we should do sharing, because there's no one size fits all. There's really no one size fits all, and there won't be for a long time because we have these problematic cultures or just just any you know inequality i'm sure even even in america you could say like you know oh uh there there's still so much prejudice in in certain places do you think that's accurate assessment of of the the privacy history narrative for him i mean that that's a lot of the complexity that that we're starting to uncover uh and our colleague uh, anna hoffman has has written on this as it relates to questions of identity on facebook and just like you're saying, you know, Zuckerberg comes from a particular, you know, uh, background and, and context in his life where having an identity is a pretty simple, uh, non-complicated thing. Um, <laughs> but but if you are, um, you know, a person of color, if you're a trans person, there's all kinds of reasons why your identity becomes really complex, uh, could be contentious and could even be you know, dangerous in terms of how it's framed or how it's exposed. Uh, and Facebook gets in trouble for this because they create like a real name policy where you have to use your real name and you can't use the uh, name that's different than what's on your, your what happened to be on your birth certificate or, or whatever kind of document. And that just doesn't work in a lot of people's world. Um, and those are some of these these interesting things that we're identifying when we start going through his language and how he he frames what it means to be a Facebook user. And oftentimes is this very simplistic kind of worldview uh, as a consequence of his up, upbringing uh, that then becomes translated into how the platform's developed. And that's some of the problems that we're trying to illuminate. Yeah. And I I'd add that uh, that's also part of the historical con- conditions from which Facebook emerged. Like, right. you know, it was originally... It, <laughs> You know, a technology used by college students, right? Who are of a very, Ivy League college students? Yeah, Ivy League college yeah. students who are a very particular type, right? And as uh, Facebook has expanded, and as Facebook is under pressure to grow its user base, right? It, it's expanding to have uh, a larger and larger diversity of users, and uh, that's a real—it's a real big social challenge. 
from your point of view, how is he handling that evolving social challenge as Facebook becomes a global organization and it's you know, but simultaneously cannot serve this one size fits all purpose? Well, it, it's still imperfect. I mean, one thing you notice when you study ten years of him speaking is that he is getting much better in terms of like corporate communication and, and, and corporate speak. You know, it's not him throwing out a quick blog post at midnight to apologize for something or stumbling over an answer. You know, he's become more polished. He's become probably more safe in his, in his language at the same time. And you can sort of see that, that happening. Um, and I also think he's trying to, at least in terms of what, what he does now for, uh, uh, publicly is, is trying to move himself, you know, kind of above you know the messiness that that we want to try to deal with when he's talking more about things like internet.org um, or the new you know the the his foundation and the health initiative and, and he's trying to move Facebook strategically as you know as this vehicle for public good um, and I think he's kind of hopeful that the dirty messy things about identity and privacy, um, and governance of the platform uh, that we want to try to understand. I think he's hoping that all just kind of resolves itself, you know, through through time. I, I think you totally encapsulated that strategy from what I see. Do you think he has become decreasingly willing to uh, commit to certain statements about, oh, this is how privacy is going to work, or this is how um, sharing is going to work, this is going to be the openness. Has it become more of, you know, it seems seems like it's become more of like a statement about um, things that we can all agree on. Like the things that the things that he's willing to say have become much more positive, uh, universally you know accessible statements that he's not going to get harangued for in the near future. Do you think that's accurate? He's become more diplomatic. Yeah, I think he's become much more mission based. Um, you know, I, there's a there's a real shift where making the world more open connect and connected just starts really getting hammered over and over and over, right? And that's and you know around 2000, 2008, 2009, and uh, I think that's really just sort of taken over as, as the sort of mantra. Yeah, so, and, it's, and some of that might be might be maturity. You know, he's he's no longer a twenty year old you know kid. He has a family. He has you know. So perhaps he's He's learning, you know, how to, you know, what what is his role and, and to not, you know, feed those fires. You know, it could be out of safety. It could be out of maturing. You know, that's you know, some some of that. I think us and other scholars might start exploring a little bit more as well. OK, let's talk about Internet.org as an example, because this is this is like one of my favorite topics. Um, and I ask I ask a lot of people about this. I, I ask like random engineers who I'm interviewing uh, about some technical thing on facebook i'll i'll just ask them like what do you think of the internet.org stuff because i thought this was just a such a such a strange um case this was obviously where facebook was trying facebook was trying to launch a widespread adoption of this internet.org thing which is basically like a walled garden version of the internet but it doesn't have any rate limiting um so it's it's kind of like selectively you can get free Wikipedia, free Facebook, free some other things, but there are other features that you other features of the internet that you will just not find at all on internet.org and India um, depending on how you want to classify the 
population of India, um, basically said, no, we don't want this thing. So from your perspective, how, I mean, what did, what, how did his um, narrative change as it became clear that India was not going to just accept internet.org as, as, you know, the, the service uh, that Zuckerberg wanted it to be? Yeah, Nick, I don't know if, if you've isolated that. I'm just starting to get some of the newer content in, into the system where we're doing with this challenge. And I have a couple of speeches and a couple of town hall meetings he made in Delhi. And also he had a town hall meeting with the prime minister of India. Uh, and I'm just getting those processed now. So I don't know if we've if we've been able to isolate mm. um, isolate his rhetoric on that yet. Yeah. Um, well, I will say, I won't mention that uh, one of the people on on the board uh, for Facebook, um, and I, I'm half remembering this, but uh, made some some interesting comments after uh, uh, um, uh, Facebook um, Free Basics was looking like it was going to fail. That really infuriated uh, a, a lot of people. They didn't come from Zuck, obviously, uh, but I think it's also you know sort of worth looking at sort of the, the corporate language more broadly in this particular case. Interesting. Well, maybe you'll have to do a entirety of Facebook board files to track, I guess, all of their discussions. Um, so I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about the engineering of the Zuckerberg files, because obviously this is the show is called Software Engineering Daily. How are you aggregating all of the textual and audio and video things that Zuckerberg is saying and indexing it? Well, it's it's a horribly um, manual process at this point where I have uh, a handful of, of uh, assistants who are helping um, identify um, source material out on the web. Uh, so some of it is going through his feed, going through Facebook's own you know communication and press postings where we find things going through YouTube where there's either official videos from TechCrunch or Y Combinator or other kinds of events or people that happen to have a flip phone out and we're recording him giving a talk at an eighth grade graduation or something like that. Um, and we're, we're grabbing that content. Um, I am, uh, if there's things that need to be transcribed, uh, a YouTube video, I ha- I'm using a a third party to do the transcriptions. Um, and then we're uploading it all into a, a digital library that's housed at UW-Milwaukee. Um, and that's what's creating the the archive itself. Um, so so we're, it's kind of a manual process. As we find things, we, we track it, we create records, and, and we upload it. Uh, so we have it all there. Um, and Nick, you can talk about how we do the actual coding and, and, and research aspect if you want. Yeah, so uh, once we have uh, sort of the text transcriptions, um, then we've uh, sort of imported them into an Envivo uh, database, which is a a piece of qualitative analysis software. Um, And uh, there's a certain amount of uh, automated coding that we can do. It'll it'll tag uh, keywords and and give us keyword proximity for some things. But actually, a lot of what we do uh, is just manual, like going through and reading the things, tagging. Um, we have a, a sort of a coding scheme that we use uh, to sort of look at a couple of different uh, things, topic areas that uh, we know are are uh, sort of buttons. Um, so like how Zuckerberg talks about the business and finance aspects of Facebook, how he talks about if he's mentioning like things around privacy or sharing. Uh, if he's talking about sort of his conceptions of what Facebook is as a technology or is as a business, 
whether he's talking about users. If so, you know, how is he talking about users? Is he defining users? Um, so that kind of stuff. And we have to go through and uh, just sort of read everything very slowly and uh, tag everything manually. Um, and it, I, I'd say that it, I spent a good two, two and a half months of my life reading <laughs> every single thing that Mark Zuckerberg has said yeah. in public that we had uh, and tagging it. So I, I feel like I have been in his mind a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and other yeah. researchers are doing, um, I, I have a few linguistics, uh, linguists who are doing linguistic analysis. Um, there was at least uh, a handful of researchers that are actually using some of the texts uh, to help inform some machine learning algorithms for for speech recognition, so there, there's a variety of different ways that people are kind of churning through churning through the data. Oh man, somebody needs to build a Mark Zuckerberg bot. That's I, I think someone might be playing around with that. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that would be so awesome. It'd be so inspiring. You could have inspiration on demand. I, I have a number Nick, of stu- a number of students on my campus that that have listened to enough Zuckerberg videos where they can do pretty good impressions. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> And he does talk exactly. I mean, it's there is definitely clear clear mannerisms in his speech. So yeah, there certainly are. Uh, yeah, Nick, having read so much Zuckerberg uh, narration, you probably have read more words by Zuckerberg than perhaps anybody else. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> the, people who have, the people who wrote the books. I imagine you've read you've read like the Facebook books yeah, and stuff, yeah, right? Like the yeah, histories. Yeah. So what do you think of him as a leader after studying him so much? Is there anything that worries you or are you like, oh, Zuckerberg for president, Zuckerberg for dictator of the world? <laughs> How do you feel about about Zuckerberg? I, don't, I, I mean, I think I have kind of a mixed view on him. Um, I think that very, I mean, he got better. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, he, you know, yeah. You know, and he became much more polished. I think there's some really interesting stuff that he does. Uh, particularly, he used to do and talk about a lot these yearly challenges that he he would do, like where right. he would you know wear a, a tie every day for a year, or uh, he was learning <laughs> Chinese and stuff like that's actually kind of really neat, just to sort of get get an idea of, of how to, how does someone actually or, like in this kind of position actually organize their life a little bit. Um, I I think that uh, I think that he has gotten a lot more polished. Um, I think that. In a lot of ways, it's harder to get sort of the the real interesting moments uh, in in sort of a speech are where he gets caught a little bit off guard or he responds a little more candidly. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you just get an insight right into uh, into something deeper about how he views the relationship between Facebook and users, which is something that I'm very very interested in. Yeah, it, are you? Do you think he is at all, and does he have um, uh, subversive, I don't want to say subversive, but does he have any, uh, ulti- do, from from reading all of his text, do you get the sense that there are nefarious ulterior motives that are at odds with what he says to the public? Uh, I I don't. Um, I think there's early on a lot of I guess what I would describe as naivete. Yeah. Um, and then there's also a lot of, f- from my perspective, you know, mistakes or or you know you know, 
imperfect decisions because of a very kind of well, what I'll describe as a very you know engineering approach to social problems and to social issues like sharing and identity and privacy. And he had a very because he was only twenty years old and really hasn't hadn't wasn't much of a social person and 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 didn't you know really have a full understanding of the complexities of life out there. And he had a very what he thought was a clean engineering solution to getting people to share things. And I think that caused a lot of problems. And I don't think it was him trying to collect information to mess with us or to make it available because you know he can make money. I think that's one interesting thing that I've noticed is that he never really seemed to have a profit motive in, in what he's doing. I think he reluctantly you know, engaged with advertising because he knew he needed that in order to keep the lights on and, and, and to do the things he, he really thinks the platform is capable of. So I never got that sense of this kind of ulterior motive. At the same time, he was never this really strong advocate for user rights or privacy or things that maybe that, that you might be seeing with, with Tim Cook at Apple or, or other kinds of organizations. So there was kind of this middle ground that he seemed to be you know, sitting on. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't think that there was ever really any alternative or ulterior motives that, that he really had or, or, or I, that I got a sense of. Um, I do think that, you know, I, I don't agree with necessarily some of his worldviews. Um, and, you know, but I don't think that there's anything that's like sneaky or hidden about what he's saying. <laughs> well, what do you disagree with? Um, well, I think one of the things that he talks about sort of later on and as, um, you know, as uh, as Facebook grows as an entity and starts taking on new kinds of users, and and you know, he starts sort of equating brands with people, and I think that that's uh, kind of a little bit of a, a, a problematic situation uh, in the sense that it sort of flattens the the real big differences between what it means to be an individual and what it means to be a brand. Um, you know, so things like that where. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, particularly some of the early stuff in his responses to uh, to people's outrage over privacy problems on Facebook was also maybe not uh, terribly slick. Um, you know, when we think about the, the, the post he had in response uh, to an outrage, which was, you know, calm down, breathe, we hear you. Right. Um, you know, I don't think that that was, I think it was a little pedantic. Um, yeah. But, you know, things like that. Hmm. And um, I believe you're both so- sociologists. Is that right? Are you? Oh, that that's what a complex you, you, question. You, you, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I'm I, I deal with information ethics. Uh, okay. And, and and work you know I work in an information school. Um, I was trained in communication and philosophy of technology. So I, I'm all kinds of things. And I think Nick is probably even more confusing than I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would say I'm an information scientist. And very broadly, I look at the relationship between the social and the technical. Okay, perfect. So do you both or either of you believe that Facebook has a dangerous amount of power? Because some people believe... Uh, this has become, you know, the one and only newspaper that everybody's reading, and they're controlling our opinion. Uh, yeah. What, what's your What's your stance on that? So, so for myself, that that that's actually been this really interesting kind of new set of discourse that's emerged in the last year or so that Zuckerberg is just now starting to engage with, and I'm starting to get that into the archive about whether or not Facebook contributes to a filter bubble, um, and do they have a unreasonable amount of uh, control over what is visible in our feeds. And, and since Facebook is used as a 
news source for so many people? Do they have some kind of uh, obligation to uh, to provide news in a fair or some kind of unbiased manner? And I don't feel you know that Facebook purposefully has taken control over our access to information and news. But I think now that that's how people are using the platform, we need to be really concerned about the kinds of algorithms and the kinds of automation that they have in place, both in terms of what's included and what's excluded by people's visibility. And I think this is a space that they're just now starting to come to terms with and realize that they have to look at this much more closely than before. I think before they're looking at this very algorithmically and we just create a feed and it has these inputs and we'll give you your news for today. And now I think we they, they, they do need to step back and, and sort of rethink how they're approaching this. Yeah, I, I think that I think that in addition to them recognizing it, other people are certainly recognizing the power that they have to shape how people have access to information. I mean I think a big part of you know the reason that people got so upset about you know algorithmic curation um, of of what's trending in terms of news, right, is very much so questions about bias, right, and and why should we care about bias? Well, it turn, you know, the reason we we're going to care about bias is because it, we really do think that it has an impact, right, on on people's uh, what people see and what people experience. Uh, I think the other piece of this for me um, is that Facebook has also become sort of the identity service for the web. It has um, really become. And particularly through acquisitions, um, you know, the way that we access, you know, the, the, the WhatsApp um, acquisition has uh, really raised a lot of questions about what it means for Facebook to have so much now information about people. Um, you know, it, it, it started off as this sort of directory, but now, you know, we have to log in through, you know, third-party websites using Facebook, right? And what does that mean for, you know, our travels more broadly throughout the web, and the way that we interact with the web more generally speaking. There's an interesting study that, that came out, um, I think it was earlier this year, that you know some people were actually confusing Facebook for the internet, right? Yeah. And- yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that was, that, was link- that was related to the concerns about internet.org. That was what people were like, oh, we don't want this to be the first internet service that people use because they're just going to confuse Facebook for the internet. Um, I don't know. So, what about sharing? Um, you you have these list of questions on the Zuckerberg Files website, and you discuss sharing as a crucial um, action that we need to better understand as a society. So, when somebody chooses to share information on social media. Why are they sharing that data? What motivates somebody to share? Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people that people share things. I mean, I think that they feel a sense of closeness. I think that, that it gives them a better sense of their own identity. Um, I think that people, you know, they are performing their identity, and that feels good to do. Right. Um, I think that uh, people share because, as actually a lot of research has shown, uh, you know, you sort of enforce social connections by doing that uh, or reinforce them. Um, I mean, there's a variety of reasons that that people share information. Uh, You know, you just want to be up to date with sort of what's going on and let people know what's going on in your life. Hmm. Is there a disutility of 
not sharing information online? Like, what is so? If if I am, for example, a privileged white male with very little to hide, why wouldn't I share information? Why wouldn't I share as much as going on with me as possible? Why wouldn't I share information as a default? Well, well if you're if you can give me your bank account password and. And <laughs> HIV status and some other things right now. I mean, there's, it, there, there's always this, this question of, you know, choosing what to share, choosing what not to share. It's not about not having anything to hide. It's about just managing, you know, the spheres around you and, and, and be able to, to maintain a certain level of uh, control over I want to share in this context or maybe I'll share something different than that context. And one of the challenges we have is that when we embrace a platform like Facebook, um, I see two things happening. One, these contexts collapse, and that creates a lot of challenge um, in terms of I, I, I thought I was just sharing with these people, but now all of a sudden, either because I lost control of that information or I didn't understand how the platform was working, that information has leaked beyond what I, what I thought it was going to be. Um, and then we also run into this broader social assumption that because a lot of people are sharing a lot of things on Facebook, that means they must be comfortable sharing everything, and everyone's comfortable sharing everything, and that's certainly not not the case. You know, we, we're selective in, in, in how we do things, and I think that's a big reason why you know colleagues and, and, and scholars like us are interested in this phenomenon. But but Nick, I you, I interrupted you. Oh no, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, context is really really important, and understanding. I think a piece of this is under is do users actually have the ability to understand right? You know who they're actually sharing with. Right. So if I make something, quote unquote, public, right, uh, does that mean that I fully understand who, you know, all of the people are uh, that are going to use this information? Do I understand how Facebook's actually going to use my information, how Facebook might serve me advertising in relationship to what I'm sharing? Um, you know, we have a, a very limited scope of, uh, of understanding of what it actually means to share something, I, I feel like. And uh, that's a little bit of a problem for users. There's an there's a tremendous asymmetry that's going on when I share something on Facebook. Right, and you know I shared something just yesterday, and I only shared it to my friends, and then one of my friends saw it, and then they shared it, and I was like, oh, I, I mean, maybe this it sounds like really naive, but I was like, oh, I have no control over. this staying within the domain of my friends but when i share it with just my friends that is that was the feeling i got i was like oh this is just going to go out to my friends it's not going to go to the broader populace but then one of my friends shared it and i was like oh this i don't have great control over this and you know i'm a software engineer i'm embedded in this stuff all day and it was just funny because it was just this slight moment where i was like oh this is counter to my intuition and uh, you know i think it gets it that there's you know, when we think about sharing something, it's like, oh, I'm sharing it with the public, but there are all these gradations of sharing. Like on WhatsApp, you send a message to one person, you've shared information with that one person. And with Facebook being linked to WhatsApp, uh, maybe the rules are different for how that that one-to-one communication perhaps will propagate more broadly, whether we're talking about to advertisers or we're talking about facebook recommending friends to us and latent information passing through that type of interaction there was obviously that case recently where two patients of the same psychiatrist were suggested by facebook to become friends of one another um you know is is there is there a legal framework around shared information do 
Do we have adequate laws in place? Do we need more laws? Well, is the I guess there's the antitrust. There's it sounds like there's some antitrust stuff brewing uh, in the EU as usual around WhatsApp and Facebook. Well, I mean the the, the legal terrain, of course, is is murky and 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 never um, up to date in terms of what social practices, especially around around technology. Um, you know, when we share things. Um, from a legal perspective, we're giving Facebook a license to that information, which allows them to show it on my phone and on my computer and on your phone and your computer. You know, as as we go through, go go through there, um, the electronic uh, wiretap laws and other kinds of laws we have are very outdated because there's an assumption that if I share information with a third party, therefore I'm allowing anyone to have that information. So my email is on Gmail servers. Therefore, anyone can have my email is literally how that law is interpreted because it was written, you know, in 1986 or something like that. So we're, we're, we're slowly, you know, working on trying to, to resolve those issues. And that's a challenging process in itself. But the example you brought up with, you know, you sharing something with your friends um, and you put a control on that, but then you were still caught off guard when it got reshared to a larger thing. I mean, that's an example of why, I think it's so important for us to interrogate and understand the discourse that people like Zuckerberg use around things like sharing and privacy, because Zuckerberg frames privacy as control, and we gave you control over that information, and you used that control when you shared it because you limited it to just friends, and from his perspective, that's mission accomplished. Um, but what you revealed is that it's much more complicated than just having that simple one-step user control because this is a sharing environment. This is a whole socio-technical system where it's not just as simple as giving someone a granular control and now we've solved the privacy problem. You know, and you're a smart, you know, computer engineer. So you, you know, and you understand these things and you still were caught off guard. So I think that's, that, that, you know, stories like that, you know, help, you know, help explain and justify why we're going through this kind of exercise. Mm. So, do you both use Facebook? Yep. Yep. A lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a decent a amount, lot. I would say. So, what do you two do full-time? How does the Zuckerberg files fit into the other things you're doing? And <laughs> how much work are you spending on it? Okay, so from, from my perspective, um, I mean, I'm a full-time professor at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and Zuckerberg files is just one of my projects. So, I find time, I find... I try to find money so I can pay students and assistants to help assist. Um, and it literally was, I was in a meeting the other day uh, doing with what's everything that's going on in the meeting. And at the same time, I'm downloading files and downloading transcripts and updating the site. So it becomes just one of these balls that I juggle, you know, throughout my, my career to help keep this updated. And that's just kind of maintaining the site. And that's, I guess, one of the challenges that I fail to foresee is that this is going to be a constantly updating and, and, and growing archive. Uh, so right now I'm actually out, you know, try, trying to get some additional funds uh, to help uh, pay for the ongoing support and, and keeping the site going. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a postdoc at the university of Maryland. So I work on a variety of different research projects and this is just sort of one of them. And I'm kind of in the same boat where just juggling a lot of different stuff. Uh, but, you know, usually all of these things have some kind of, uh, thread in common in terms of you know looking at the relationship between the social and the technical. Got it. Well, I I think that's a it's a great place to to close off. I guess you know one last question I have is this kind of random, but how do you um 
how do you transcribe the audio and the video uh. stuff? Because listeners have been asking to get transcripts of the podcast and all of the options that I've looked at are like really expensive. Right. So at first I had students sitting with headphones, listening and typing, (laughs) and that was painful and that was slow. And they were going slowly insane because (laughs) it was Zuckerberg, 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 Zuckerberg. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's Um, a little easier to read it than to listen to it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like a clockwork orange type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was was an incoming freshman. Yeah. And she just turned to me and said, I just can't, I just can't listen to him anymore. Um, And so I actually use uh, an online service called Rev, rev rev.com. And it's not cheap. It's, it's, uh, it's a dollar a minute. Um, And they'll transcribe and they also will do, it's called verbatim. Well, they'll include the ums and the pauses and the coughs, uh, which actually Mm -hmm. I do include because I'm also curious as to when, like Nick was mentioning, when you can you can find out when he's uncomfortable with something or when he's caught off guard, and you can you can try to gauge oh. that through some of the some of the nuance in his language. When does he struggle with an answer versus have it just roll off his tongue? Yeah, and actually, um, like you you start seeing kind of a drop off in the number of ums. Yes, uh, the further along in the archive that you get, which is kind of interesting. Like he gets you, you much get, more polished. Yeah, and and that's I haven't mapped it out yet, but I remember seeing somewhere you know someone in Facebook mentioned that they they got you know, professional, you know, help for him to be, to do public speaking. Because, uh, again, he's just this computer programming kid that suddenly turned into this public figure. Um, and you, can, you, can, you can't see that in the archive. So, yeah, I, I use them to do the transcriptions. Very cool. And they do a great All job. Right. So, I can, maybe they'll give me a free one. So, <laughs> Yeah, referral code. Um, <laughs> uh, I wonder if they use... Um, Mechanical Turk or something behind the scenes. I suspect that they do because um, the turnaround is often very, very quick. You know, if I have a 10 minute video, I often get the transcript back within, you know, a half an hour. Um, I have longer videos that take that take longer. And then oftentimes we have people with accents or there's other kinds of things that take a little bit longer to do. But yeah. Hmm. Well, Michael and Nick, I want to thank you for coming on the show. This has been a really interesting conversation, definitely outside the scope of what we typically cover on Software Engineering Daily, but I think it's funny because listeners actually like these. It seems like they like these types of shows more than they actually like shows about software engineering. So uh, maybe more tangential shows are in the future. Thanks for coming on the show, you guys. Thank you very much. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono.